Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with episode 254 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and we are here to talk all things NXT and AEW for the first time in 2020, coming off a couple of extremely special shows for the respective brands this week. For NXT, we had the annual New Year's Evil television special, and for AEW, we had not only the second half of New Year's Smash for Rampage last Friday, but also the AEW Dynamite debut on TBS, which had a number of big matches on the card. So we have an absolute ton to get to on today's show. But before we get to that, you guys know the drill. I need to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating for Getting Over on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love the show. And also please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So we do have a long show. Like I said, there's a lot to get to today. Not so much a long show, just a uh, content-packed edition of Getting Over. And as always, I give you this note at the beginning of the program, a reminder that all of our episodes, whether it's WWE and Instant Analysis, NXT and AEW, whatever the case, uh, we all have timestamps in our episode description. So if you only watch AEW, if you only watch NXT, whatever the case, you can jump back and forth. All you need to do is go to wherever you are listening to this podcast right now, look at the description, find the timestamp, and you can move around. One other thing to address before we get started today, I really wanted to include New Japan Pro Wrestling's Wrestle Kingdom special event to kick off the new year in today's show. Unfortunately, I simply did not have the time to watch the number of matches necessary uh, in order to break down the whole thing. It's a two-day card. There were probably, I would say, five, maybe six matches I wanted to go over. I've seen two of them. Uh, So therefore, I'm just not ready, unfortunately, to do that today. I know time-wise, it made the most sense to do it this week. We will do it next week. On next Thursday's episode, we will go triple threat, AEW, NXT, and New Japan all in one episode. So you will be able to hear my thoughts on Wrestle Kingdom, along with, you know, everything that we normally talk about with AEW and NXT. This week, we are going to start with NXT, but we're actually not even going to start with New Year's Evil because in typical WWE fashion, they cannot do one or two good things in a row without somehow creating negative press for themselves, shooting themselves in the foot, doing something that will anger the IWC, I would say, but any wrestling fan with common sense. Uh, WWE on Wednesday, like less than 24 hours after this great New Year's Evil show that had a lot of people talking, some people tuned in uh, that previously hadn't been tuned into NXT and said, hey, you know what? Maybe we'll give this a chance. It turns out they used that as like an end date for a lot of people in the NXT brand. Uh, WWE fired a number of people, I would say, between a handful and two handfuls overall with three of the most notable firings being uh, Road Dog and Scott Armstrong. Uh, of course, they're brothers in real, real life. But most notably, William Regal, who spent 22 years in WWE. Uh, this guy obviously, you know, was an incredible professional wrestler when he was in ring. He even had, I believe, an NXT match at one point with Antonio Cesaro. That was really damn good uh, when he did it. But Regal really joined that NXT brand and started it when it transitioned to a performance center-based product, the idea of being a true developmental type of territory internally within the WWE system. He made that transition in 2014 uh, in WWE as a whole. He was one of their top recruiters. He was their number one global recruiter. He was the main guy who developed talent within the organization. And he served really as like, an overall manager and overseer of developmental and the performance center, especially when Paul Levesque, Triple H, 
was not there, which he frequently was not because he was at Raw or SmackDown or in Connecticut or whatever the case. William Regal was the man there. Um, He had a major hand in the NXT brand and product that all of us truly loved. There were really three people that are responsible for it. Paul Levesque, Dusty Rhodes, and William Regal. Obviously, rest in peace. Dusty Rhodes is no longer with us. Uh, Paul Levesque, we don't know what level of involvement he still has in the PC and NXT anymore. And now William Regal is fired. Uh, He certainly helped bring a ton of those top tier independent wrestling talents into WWE and NXT. And he had a major hand, probably second in the entire company, maybe third, if you want to give the second credit to Paul, with the development of, I don't know why I said development that way, but the development of the women's division of the women's revolution that became the evolution. Sarah Amato, the trainer, obviously being the number one most important person who helped that along, uh, not only developed the top tier talent that William Regal and Paul Levesque signed, but also made a lot of women's wrestlers from scratch in the performance center. She's still there, thank the Lord. Uh, But Regal was incredibly important in the four horsewomen, not only developing, but getting significant television time on NXT and becoming the tentpole wrestlers that they are for an entire generation of female performers who want to be in this industry. He had a massive, massive role in it. And besides all the backstage stuff, William Regal was arguably the best on-screen general manager in professional wrestling history. I'm not saying WWE or NXT. I'm saying professional wrestling, period. I do not know anyone who truly did that specific job better than Regal. He was never a huge presence. He was there when you needed him. He had a ton of quotable moments and memeable moments. Everyone, of course, these days knows War Games, that big announcement that he made a couple years ago when they brought that back. Uh, But it was well beyond that. He had incredible interactions. He helped characters get over. He really helped heels get over uh, in NXT. And to lose that type of presence within your organization, someone who has been there for 22 years, man, that just has to absolutely gut people. And it is blatantly clear now that WWE is focused on gutting NXT of this army, of this bubble of people that Triple H had created and built down there. There's really no clarity right now on who is running things in NXT whether it's Triple H, but he's staying behind the scenes because maybe he's not happy or whatever the case, or if it's someone else and his input is marginalized or maybe even non-existent these days. He hasn't spoken at all since that heart issue that obviously sidelined him for a number of months, understandably, but he hasn't spoken. He hasn't done an interview, nothing. We've heard nothing from him. I don't even know if he's tweeted or not. He certainly has stopped tweeting about NXT. And right now it just all seems to be a mass of confusion and anger, especially down there. But man, I've spoken to people who are in WWE right now, who previously were employed, who got fired recently by WWE, and people just do not understand what is going on right now. So this is probably a larger conversation for a different episode. Maybe I did get a uh, DM from a, a longtime listener who suggested that we do a separate like eulogy of NXT episode. And I actually think it's a fantastic idea. Now I need to build that up. By the way, the listeners, Austin Herzog at Austin Herzog, H-E-R-T-Z-O-G. It's a great suggestion from you, Austin. Uh, In order for me to do that type of episode, I would need to bring people in who have insight into what things were like in NXT and maybe even what things are like right now, or I at least will need to speak to some of those people. So that's an episode I'd love to do. It's something that needs to be in development. Maybe I'll do a target, you know, future date for it and try to put it all together. But man, like what's happened to NXT, my, you know, favorite professional wrestling brand, maybe ever, just when you think about start to finish from the black and yellow, I loved every bit of that. You know, there were times, I guess, where it took a little down step, but You know, if you look at WWE over my entire life, there's been large periods where I've disliked it. Um, There's also been large periods where I've loved it. But you look at NXT and it just is that one brand that came along at the right time for me. It came along at the right time for, you know, 
thousands of other professional wrestling fans. And I think it's kind of fair to say that it made careers and made national names of a lot of talent that may not have otherwise gotten that opportunity. Now, unfortunately for us, and really unfortunately for WWE due to its own decision-making, a ton of those talents are succeeding over in AEW. And I could even make an argument that AEW would perhaps never exist if it wasn't for NXT showing that there was an appetite for this type of hardcore, you know, real professional wrestling uh, programming. So it's just, it's all really tough to swallow. I, re- I, I desperately want to learn more about what's happening there. And despite there being some decent reporting on it, there's really not any true inside information about like who is running the day-to-day, you know, what is happening? What does the future hold? What is Triple H's position within the company? It's all just a lot of conjecture and, oh, everyone's really upset and negative. And I'm hearing those same things. But you really need to look at what WWE is doing across the board. We talked about releasing or, or losing 80 talents in 2021. That's not to mention all the front office cuts. They drastically uh, reduced their production department uh, and merged some divisions. They cut almost all of the veteran communications staffers that they had within the company. The people that helped me book interviews for this podcast that I had great working relationships with. I think all but one of them are gone at this point. Uh, so you're wondering why there's been fewer interviews here. Some of it's me. I've been extremely busy. And during uh, November, December, it's really the time of year where I don't have as much time to interview talent. And there will be WWE and NXT and hopefully soon AEW superstars, wrestlers that come on the show. But a large reason of why it's been so greatly reduced is I'm not getting the pitches I used to get anymore to have people on the show. And it came from all of those awesome people who were incredible at their jobs. So things in WWE right now are extremely, extremely strange. And NXT now being in the position it was in, we already knew that it was transitioning to 2.0. So none of this was really a surprise. But to see like the bloodletting and to see William F. Regal be fired by WWE, a guy who, if you were starting a wrestling company, would be one of your top two or three people that you hire, period, in the company in terms of backstage personnel, in terms of managing the organization and developing talent. For them to fire him, man, actions truly do speak louder than words sometimes. And this action, it speaks louder than a lot of the words we've heard about NXT transitioning to NXT 2.0. So I know the show started off on a negative note, and I got to tell you guys, I am bullish on New Year's Evil. I loved the show we got Tuesday night. I really, really did. So I didn't expect to be starting the show angry at NXT, but that is just typical WWE for you these days. They do something good that you want to celebrate, and then 24 hours, less than 24 hours later, they do something where it just, it takes the complete wind out of the sails. So those are my thoughts on William Regal. We will move on with the rest of the show. We're going to start with NXT New Year's Evil, and then we will get to AEW Dynamite and Rampage. So for New Year's Evil, the main event was Tommaso Ciampa defending the NXT Championship against Braun Breaker. Braun had new tights that were like mostly black, moving away from the Steiner colors. His entrance had him breaking chains and then kicking a big styrofoam NXT yellow X in half. The styrofoam part was Super corny and clearly illustrative of what people think about the old NXT within WWE right now. Champa ironically came out in NXT 2.0 colored tights, which I thought was interesting. And this whole thing was commercial free in the main event, which was a really good decision, of course, by WWE and USA Network. Uh, Champa dominated early. He had a twisting corkscrew plancha. Breaker later hit a great spine buster and an absurd standing moonsault. I did not think someone his size could do it that cleanly. Uh, Champa's temple got busted open hard way on a knee. Breaker hit a spear without a pin attempt and then a Frankensteiner for a near fall. Champa countered a power slam, slinging Breaker through the ropes for Willow's Bell and another near fall. Then he worked on a knee that Braun was selling. Breaker countered a Willow's Bell attempt into the concrete outside by flipping Champa back first into the announce table with like an Alabama slam and it completely flattened the table on impact. Then he pressed power slam Champa, but the champion grabbed the bottom rope. Champa held on to the rope so he had time to recover, then snapped the middle rope on Braun's nuts. He hit three exposed knees and a fairy tale ending for what looked like it was going to be the finish of the match. Great false finish at 2.9. 
Braun hit a flying bulldog, just like his dad, Rick Steiner, then locked Champa into the damn Steiner recliner for the submission to win the NXT title in about 17 minutes. Champa gave a nod of approval as Breaker celebrated and the show went off the air. So this was very, very similar to their first match, but there were more elements here that were specifically meant to get Braun over. Both guys were tremendous. Braun showcased an improved and expanded uh, wrestling skill set. Champa worked hard to get Braun over while making it seem throughout most of the match like he would retain. And I legitimately thought he was keeping Goldie until the fairy tale ending kickout. As soon as that happened, you knew exactly where it was going to go. I went 4.25 stars and an A here. It was just an exceptionally well wrestled, entertaining match. Braun has only been wrestling for 16 months. He's only been in WWE for 11 months, and he's only been on TV for like six months and had, I don't know, 10 matches. Yet this guy is this good already. It's absolutely insane. This also marked, this moment, this match, it really did mark the official end of the last remnants of the black and gold era. Imperium is still tag team champions, yes, but, you know, Champa holding that NXT title, that was really like, the mountain. That's the moment when he dropped it to Braun Breaker, a completely inexperienced neophyte wrestler who's very good, but still is inexperienced and still is a neophyte. Um, it nevertheless tells you all you really need to know. But don't get me, don't get it twisted in any you know way. I like this a lot. I like it. I like it a lot. And it was definitely the best show that NXT has put on. Since, since the transition to 2.0. Not even a question about that. We had an NXT Women's Championship match. Mandy Rose against Raquel Gonzalez and Cora Jade in a triple threat. Mandy arrived via helicopter and Raquel Gonzalez rolled a massive motorcycle into the PC. Both entrances felt totally unnecessary. Gonzalez did a stack Samoan drop. Mandy got Cora in an abdomen leg lock. Jade hit a couple hurricanranas before Gonzalez threw her straight out of the ring. Rose ran away, so Gonzalez chased her down. Mandy then caught her with a draping code breaker for a 2.5. Gonzalez hit Rose with a chingona bomb, but Jade broke it with a flying senton onto both women. Gonzalez went for a superplex, but Jade slunk down and tossed her over the ropes. Cora then tried to roll up. Mandy countered with a sitting pinfall for the 1-2-3 in about 13 minutes. So on this match, there was nothing substantially wrong with it until the finish. Mandy didn't hook the legs, so the pinning combination looked incredibly weak. And if you're going to have Mandy retain the title, why not just let her hit a finisher and pin this 20-year-old tiny women's wrestler who's just learning like how to wrestle? Who are you protecting here? Also in kayfabe, why is Gonzalez running after Mandy when Rose leaving the match would have made it easier for her to just throw Jade in the ring, pin her, and win the title? That's just straight dumb. Those were two huge issues in this match. The match also was not especially fluid. There were really fun parts. And I don't want to say that it was a travesty or it was terrible in any way. I think a lot of people were really, really hard on this match. And again, it wasn't great. But I also don't think it was terrible for any particular reason. So I went 2.75 stars and a C+. The truth is, Mandy is not a good wrestler. She shouldn't be a single star and she definitely shouldn't be a brand champion. Jade is way too green to be in this spot. Gonzalez has great presence, but she her best matches all come when she's with a really good worker. They tried to have Raquel Gonzalez carry this match, but she's not solid enough to do that yet. If Dakota Kai or Io Shirai had been in this instead of Cora Jade, we probably would have had a banger here, um, or at least something that was in the three-star range. But this combination... It was three women who just didn't work well together. One who's inexperienced, one who's the champion and not especially good in the ring. And the best of the bunch is not ready really to lead a match. It was just not a good combination. Definitely the worst match of the night. Um, But I don't think it deserves as much grief as it got from some other people. Uh, We had Carmelo Hayes, the North American champion, against Roderick Strong, the cruiserweight champion, in a title unification match. This opened the show. Mello got most of the offense early and hit a great backwards springboard draping leg drop, plus a pendulum DDT on the apron. Mello, and by the way, Trick Williams for that matter as well, uh, they had an incredible sell of a running kick 
Mellow in the ring, Trick's facial expression was hysterical. Um, both Mellow and Strong countered out of submissions before Strong hit a third backbreaker for a near fall. Strong hit a rolling, then running elbow, uh, then an Olympic slam for a 2.8 count. Mellow got a twisting cutter for a 2.5, then flipped out of Strong's finisher. Strong hit a step up in Seguri with Hayes on the top rope, plus an insane avalanche X-plex that may have been a botch, but I'm not totally sure, but it looked awesome anyway, with Mello draping his arm over Strong for a near fall. Mello then followed with a leg drop to the back of Strong's head for the 1-2-3 to unify the titles as the new North American Championship. This was an absolute banger. It went 15 minutes and it never relented at all outside of the brief time that it was during a commercial. The wrong person won for me but I get it, okay? They're clearly going in a certain direction. I'd have preferred Strong putting on bangers with a lot of the young talent for the title and then Mello eventually winning it back in a few months. That, for me, would have been a better booking. The X-Plex, if it was intentional, was phenomenal. If it was unintentional, then it was a great save and I'm very happy both guys didn't get hurt. Uh, Mello is legit in every way. Superstar potential, basically a can't-miss star, I said the exact same thing about Swerve, though, and dude comes up to SmackDown and gets fired. So who the hell knows what this guy's future holds? But again, 4.25 stars and an A, just exceptionally entertaining from start to finish. That was a good one, yeah. We had Walter and Imperium against Riddle and MSK. The faces had a remix theme with a live DJ that was pretty damn cool. Walter cleared house and set up a stereo missile dropkick on Wesley. Riddle got the hot tag and went for a double draping DDT, but Walter stopped him. Riddle then did a springboard floating bro onto Walter as MSK did double tope suicidas into Imperium. Riddle German suplexed uh, Walter with a bridge for a 2.8, but Walter came back with a missile dropkick and a powerbomb for a 2.8 of his own. Nash Carter broke a fall with a brainbuster on Riddle. MSK combined for the assisted blockbuster, plus Riddle hit a floating bro on Fabian Eichner before Riddle hit an RKO on Marcel Bartel for the win in 17 minutes. This was just a blast, start to finish. First of all, Walter looks like a million bucks. Guy looks like he dropped 25 pounds. Just incredible. Uh, Riddle and MSK were a perfect match together, and this thing banged as well. It started slow, but it really, really got hot, especially towards the finish. And I know this may sound repetitive, but just like the other two men's matches that preceded this, I went with the exact same grade. 4.25 stars and an A. None of these were really a top tier match, but all of them were just so exceptionally good that they were extremely strong A television matches. If you gave any of them five additional minutes, you're probably going a little bit higher. But because they were all in that 13 to 17 minute range, this is basically uh, where you're at with all of them. Just very, very fun. Um, MSK, you know, people don't really talk about it. MSK has it. And I really think Fabian Eichner has it as well. We know Riddle does. We know Walter does. And I'm not saying Marcel Bartel does not. But man, Eichner is just super, super impressive. He's had two great showings back to back on TV recently. Quick note before we finish up with NXT New Year's Evil. Fightful reported this week that Jeff Hardy, prior to being released, was actually supposed to be the shaman for MSK in the role that was taken by Riddle. And I feel justified and vindicated by that report because I told you guys on this podcast, I thought it was Hardy. They mentioned no more words when they were in the airport, you know, discussing who they were flying to see. They were talking about meeting with a tag team specialist. It seemed to be Jeff Hardy. It seemed very, very obvious. Um, So again, I just feel vindicated that I was right about that. I'll do the Barry Horowitz. I'll pat myself on the back. Um, obviously Riddle taking his spot, you know, he was really good in his role as well. The whole thing was flat for me as we've discussed, but I just wanted to bring that up and uh, make sure you all knew I was right, which is the most important thing, of course. Uh, AJ Styles, uh, confronted Grayson Waller. Styles ran into champ in the locker room earlier. They dapped each other up. It was a really cool moment. Styles got a standing chant from the crowd and thanked them. You could tell he was really touched by it. Styles said he loved his WWE debut in the Royal Rumble but he did regret never experiencing NXT because of the fans' passion for it. Waller came out to a ton of heat, saying Styles was deflecting from being crushed by Omos on Raw. Styles challenged him. Waller said he only fought in main events, and so they set up AJ Styles versus Grayson Waller 
as the main event next week. They brawled and Waller avoided the phenomenal forearm. Good segment, just flat out, good, entertaining, well-placed on this show. And I really liked that they didn't put this match on this card and they saved it for next week. Because if you watched this show, and this show did get the highest overall rating for NXT since Halloween Havoc, you were given a reason to tune back in next week. In fact, they booked a couple matches for next week, giving people a reason uh, to keep watching 2.0 if they enjoyed what they got on Tuesday. Pete Dunne cut a tape promo on Tony D'Angelo saying the crowbar shot wasn't enough to keep him down and he'd stomp his mouth for good. Uh, It was typically great stuff from Dunne. This was also set for next week as a crowbar on a pole match. Vince Russo would be jealous, Uh, but those are two really good matches to promote for next week's show. NXT announced the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic starting for the men on January 18th and the women in February. Caden Carter and Casey Cantazaro were talking with Amari Miller about winning the titles. Indy Hartwell and Persia Prada took exception. Tried to recruit Trif- Tiffany Stratton on their team to fight the, the faces, but she scoffed. Then Wendy Chu, which is the name of Mi Ying, who is also known as Karen Q, the one who's always sleeping with the bag and the pillow. Uh, she was found sleeping in the corner. So it looks like she's going to step up as the sixth woman in the match. Both teams, I'm sure, will be in the tournament. Uh, Joe Gacy and Harlan later said they wanted to be in the men's event, but they had no problem earning their way in as a brand new tag team. Riddle, uh, after you know their match was over in this segment, uh, and MSK, they did a goodbye, like a goodbye for now type of deal in the parking lot, with Riddle telling them to go in the tag team titles. The Brothers Creed, and that's their new name, better than the Creed Brothers, I like how that sounds, came up and they said that they would have to win the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic uh, and they'd have to get through them in order to do it and become number one contenders. I think this was the first time the Creeds have spoken and they handled it pretty well. So, you know, not bad at all. Uh, Andre Chase was in the ring talking about last week with Harlan being a teachable moment. Then he recognized the student who was abducted by Harlan and gave him a full scholarship to chase you. Von Wagner interrupted with an awful promo about that he likes being booed or something like that. Then he hit Chase with an Olympic slam, killed the student, attacked some fans, and then got wrangled by security. On his way out, he stared down Ivy Nile for some reason. I don't even know why that happened. Wagner just sucks, dude. Like, bad look, bad wrestler, bad promo. It is a total failure, and I cannot believe they haven't figured it out already. Chase, meanwhile, is crushing his current gimmick and has tons of character. I was very wrong about Chase U and just that whole idea. But Von Wagner, right now, it's just, it's not good at all. Zero point zero. Electra Lopez said family comes first regarding to Legado del Fantasma, but also admitted she's attracted to success. She said all would be answered next week when Santos Escobar fights Zion Quinn with the winner of the match leaving with her. I really don't like that booking. Like in kayfabe, why would she leave a faction where she succeeded for a guy she thinks is hot? I mean, I guess in reality, people leave their families when the families don't approve of their lovers or or mates or whatever the case. But I don't know. It seems like it happened really fast. She doesn't know the guy. She just thinks he's hot and she's willing to potentially leave Legato. It feels to me like it's a scenario where it's a setup. And But then if it's a setup and Legato wins, that's already happened. Like Escobar already beat, I think, Quinn. So then where's it going from there? Uh, the match should be good. I think Zion Quinn has a nice future, but... Man, they got to use Santos Escobar better than they're using him. It is really frustrating. Uh, Cameron Grimes cut a taped promo recapping his wild 2021, saying it's time to stop chasing green and instead start chasing gold. Very simple. Boa kept washing his face, begging the spirits to let him fight Sola Sokoa on his own. It seemed like that would happen until the painted face appeared in the side of the mirror. They're trying to make this work. I don't think it's going to, but I'll give it a little bit more of a chance. And that was really it from NXT. I will say this was the best NXT show since the 2.0 transition by a pretty good mile. Uh, WWE made some really smart moves, bringing fans in with a special event. They had Riddle, AJ Styles, and Walter while they showcased young talent, not only in the matches, but in vignettes and video packages, getting people to come and watch next week. It gave fans a better taste of what 2.0 is about, especially compared to their first couple of episodes that were absolutely horrendous. Uh, This show, 2.0, for anyone listening to this, It's worthy of a second chance if you stopped watching after those first couple of episodes. I don't know that you're going to like it, but I think it's worth giving it another shot because week to week, especially if I was not doing a podcast and I could DVR and fast forward it, there's probably one hour of really entertaining wrestling television 
on NXT 2.0. And I believe if you give it your time, it'll be a worthwhile watch at a minimum as DVR fodder. So with that, let's move over to AEW. And I'm actually going to do this a little bit differently than I normally do. I usually mix Dynamite and Rampage together. Not doing that this week. I'm going to talk Dynamite off the top. And then afterward, we'll talk about what happened on Rampage New Year's Smash. So this was the debut on TBS. No major changes, not that we should expect any. I did think we might get like new video packages, you know, an altered, uh, you know, entry theme, intro theme. Um, I don't know. I thought they, there might be something kind of interesting, maybe a TBS title presentation for the winner of that match. They didn't really do anything that I would call special from a presentation standpoint. That does not mean the show was bad. The show was very good. But from a presentation standpoint, um, you know, I thought they were going to make a bigger deal of being on TBS because they promoted it so heavily. But that's a very, very minor gripe. So the, the main event match of the show that opened the show and was not in the main event was the AEW World Championship Hangman Page versus Brian Danielson, the rematch. Page hit a tope suicida, then a bit later caught an attempt from Brian into an exploder suplex. Danielson put him into the steps with a drop toehold so Hangman could blade just like he did in the last match. Hangman flipped out of a German suplex, then hit one with a bridge for a near fall. They repeated the vertical suplex over the rope spot with Danielson running Page into the ring post. The same happened to Brian, who then bladed himself. And his was really deep. His head was gushing blood as Hangman did jumping jacks with blood streaming down both of their phases in dueling crimson masks. Hangman did an avalanche flipping fallaway slam uh, in what I thought was the spot of the match after 22 minutes. Then hit Deadeye at ringside. Danielson avoided the buckshot lariat by collapsing, then caught Page in the bell lock. Hangman hit a moonsault outside. Brian countered the buckshot lariat with a running knee for a great near fall, then hit a gotch pile driver for another. Hangman countered a running knee with a powerbomb, then escaped some submissions, dropped Brian on his head, and hit the buckshot lariat for the 1-2-3 in 30 minutes. This was a tremendous match from start to finish. It was better than the first in some respects, given there was less wasted time. But they spent so much time in the middle of the match on the blood and, you know, punching the head so that it would bleed more, that it took time away from the great wrestling that we know they're capable of. Hangman obviously had to win, and Brian looked strong in defeat. So the booking of the match and the finish was perfect. But I'm not going to go as high as I did for their first match, which I downgraded that one a little bit because it finished in a draw. I think I gave that one 4.75 stars and an A+. I can't get there here because there was less great wrestling in this than there was in that. And the reliance on the blood for me, it just, I, it couldn't get me to that level. It was still great. 4.5 stars and an A. I understand if others go higher, there's no way this could ever get to five stars for me. It did not hit all of my buttons, despite it being great and a very early, definite match of the year contender, um, at least in North America. And again, there's going to be some New Japan matches that we'll talk about, but this is definitely a match of the year contender through what? What are we, six days into the year? So it's up there. One other note, uh, in a spot where it looked like AEW could bring in some really cool names, the judges were just guys who are normally backstage. So it was Mark Henry, Jerry Lynn, and Paul White. There was only like a 5% chance this match would go to the cards anyway. But once you saw the judges before the match, you officially knew it was irrelevant and a 0% chance. And since they were doing blood, they might as well have done a street fight stipulation or something like that. It just felt like they wanted to put a stipulation on this and they wanted it to be special, but they didn't really follow through with that. The first match, again, was better than this one. So I'm not trying to shit on it in any way. I'm just saying I like the first one more. But this was very, very good. Like I said, 4.5 stars and an A. Um, yeah, Brian delivers. And there's a reason, you know, I know Roman Reigns won our 2021 Wrestler of the Year award. He completely deserved it. But there is a reason why Brian Danielson got my vote. All right, we had Malachi Black versus Brian Pillman Jr. Pillman tried a springboard move, but tripped on the top rope, eating a black mass for the loss. Black then left the ring, then came back to stalk Julia Hart. The Lucha Bros entered ahead of their match, which was the main event. 
The lights went out. They traded places with Black on the ramp, Lucha Bros in the ring. It was a lot of nothing here. I thought we were about to get a moment with the lights going out, but it ended up just being a trick. And it's one that repeated itself a little bit later. So the real main event of the show was the AEW Tag Team Championship, Lucha Bros versus Jurassic Express. There was an overly absurd choreographed spot with springboard arm drags at the beginning of the match. Jungle Boy jumped over Luchasaurus and Pentagon for an insane flying Canadian destroyer on Ray Phoenix before Luchasaurus hit a move on Penta for a near fall. Phoenix then hit a destroyer on Luchasaurus with Penta nailing Jungle Boy with an awesome made in Japan for a near fall. The lights briefly went out, but made no real impact on the match. They went out, they came back on. Lucha Bros were still in dominant position. Phoenix hit a tornado on Luchasaurus as Penta hit a draping apron pile driver on Jungle Boy. Lucha Bros combined for the taint stop fear factor and Jungle Boy kicked out at 2.9 for what can only be called an absurd false finish after all the punishment he had taken. Him not losing there just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. It was it was overindulgent is what I would call it. Alex Abrahantis grabbed the table and got chased by Christian. Luchasaurus caught Phoenix flying for a driving chokeslam through the table. Christian returned. Jungle Boy and Penta countered finishers with Jungle Boy catching Penta in a pinning combination for the one, two, three to win the titles in about 15 minutes. After the match, the bunch of tag teams hit the stage to stare down uh, the new champions. Then Chris Jericho and Malachi Black were shown watching from the seats in different locations. Uh, there's, there's some news coming out of this as well. Ray Phoenix dislocated his elbow, apparently very badly, in the table spot. I definitely hope he's okay. The guy is always hurt, but he's always hurt because he does absolutely bat crazy shit. I should say bat shit crazy stuff. Regardless, he's a nut. Uh, Ray Phoenix, one of the best wrestlers in the world. It sucks that he's hurt again. Obviously hope that he gets a full recovery. As far as the match goes, it was a fun match. Uh, These guys are all awesome wrestlers, but you know, you guys know my normal drill. Like when I give criticisms of this, very little tagging, a ton of choreography. It felt like a letdown for a title change, which should have been a big deal. The match going on last telegraphed the change because it was on the TBS debut. The crowd did cheer for the moment, but then it kind of just stood silent because as soon as the match ended, they had the tag teams come out. Then they started showing people in the crowd. Why don't you just let the guys, these big baby faces who just won the title, keep the focus on them, allow them to celebrate. AEW does that all the time. I hate when they do that. It felt like Jurassic Express winning the titles should have been a bigger deal than it was in this moment. That to me was unfortunate. Something about this just didn't hit for me the way it probably hit for many of you. I'll say four stars and an A minus. That's probably lower than most will give it. I'm sure a certain someone will give it 4.75 stars or something like that. Uh, I, I just can't get there for it. I really, really liked it. Entertaining, great part of the show. I just can't get to an A. It was an A minus match for me, but very, very good. Uh, MJF had a scheduled match against Sean Dean. CM Punk ran into the ring as soon as the bell rang, scaring MJF off. Punk then turned around, kicked Dean in the stomach and hit the GTS, forcing a disqualification and a loss on MJF's record. With the records resetting in the start of the year, MJF is now 0-1. Punk said he'll do this to MJF to prevent him from building his record until he's man enough, mans up, and fights Punk. MJF pointed out that Punk last week said he wanted to go after the AEW title. MJF said the same thing. So all of that was just bullshit, apparently. And MJF also said he's the only thing that makes Punk relevant. MJF made a quip about Punk never main eventing WrestleMania. He called it that by name and said he'll go in main event to Mania if he doesn't start getting respect in AEW. Punk said MJF could go main event night four of a buy one, get one extravaganza only to get released and come back to get his ass kicked anyway by CM Punk. MJF got angry and teased the match, but set Punk versus Wardlow for next week. So I loved the start of this. I'm not sure why they teased taking a break from each other, only to just get right back after it after seven days. I even loved MJF bringing up WrestleMania, even though we talked about last week how he's under contract three more years, and it's going to get really boring and monotonous if he keeps doing these promos. Hey, respect me or I'll leave for WWE when we all know he's not going to leave for WWE. So I really do believe that news story that was planted like a week or two weeks ago, um, or I should say the news story that came out a couple weeks ago was planted. I 100% believe that. Now that's all the part that I loved. Seeing that this was actually just a setup for Punk to once again shit on WWE in a massively exaggerated way, by the way, that lost me. 
He cannot help but keep punching up. Let it go, dude. You're supposed to be happy now and fulfilled in AEW. So go and be happy and fulfilled. MJF, once again, completely outclassed Punk on the mic. It's actually pretty startling to see Punk get beat beat on the stick like this consistently by MJF. He has to fall back, Punk, on the WWE shots because it's the only thing that pops the crowd that he says anymore. I mean, the sports references, all that other stuff, it's just falling flat. But I have to say, beyond the WWE stuff, this was a great use by AEW of both its win-loss system in their rankings and the fact that the company never does disqualification finishes. It made the DQ a shocking development rather than an eye roll like it would be in WWE. And the result of the DQ actually mattered because it directly affected MJF's ability to contend for a title. Now that said, MJF's had like the best record in AEW over the last two years. And I think he's only had one AEW title match. So it's not like it's a perfect system, but still I loved the utilization of the rankings and the rarity of AEW disqualifications here. It was very, very smart booking and extremely well done from an overall conceptualization standpoint. I thought they did an awesome job here. Uh, Wardlow fought a jobber whose name I completely missed, by the way. Sean Spears hit that jobber with a Death Valley driver at ringside. Wardlow refused to cover, hit five power bombs for the win. Spears then added his normal chair shot. This is really getting repetitive. I presume that Wardlow, I have to believe he loses to CM Punk next week, but maybe it's because MJF screws up somehow. If so, this will build, but it feels like it's going to get dampened. I They need to put Wardlow against stronger competition consistently. So after the CM Punk match, I don't want to see him powerbombing jobbers anymore. I want to see him going four minutes with low carters. And then I want to see him go six to seven minutes with mid carters. That's how I want to see this progress for Wardlow. They need to get away from this very base level squash match. We know the guy can squash people. We've known it. He's been in bigger matches. So I don't know why you're reestablishing him as a squash match, dude. So that's the one thing that I think they need to fix with this, but still huge Wardlow fan. Uh, The TBS Women's Championship, Ruby Soho against Jade Cargill in the finals of the tournament. Mercedes Martinez ran down after a couple of rough minutes to taunt Ruby as she sold a shoulder injury outside, only for Thunder Rosa to immediately follow and chase Martinez out. Mark Sterling got ejected. Ruby countered Jaded into no future for a near fall. Jade then caught Soho on the ropes for a horrendously executed avalanche jaded for the win. Cargill was the obvious winner. We knew she was going to win, but man, she is still somehow not at all ready to be in the ring like this, at least in a, in a match like this. It was a bad match, bell to bell. And it tells you all you need to know about the AEW women's division, that it massively improved the division from a talent standpoint over the last year, especially over the last six months but it still can't book women's wrestling with any consistent quality. Jade just isn't ready for this. There's about six other women who would have been more deserving and better served in this spot than her, yet they decided to put the title on her. I don't know what the booking is gonna be. I presume that the person that beats her will be someone who debuts maybe like uh, Ember Moon, who will probably go by the name Athena if she does join AEW. I could see that potentially happening and that being a big spot to put her over three, four, five, six months from now, whatever the case. But man, like this was just terrible. So bad, it didn't even grade it. Didn't come close to anywhere in the three star range. Didn't come close to 2.5 or above. Just bad match. Uh, Britt Baker taunted Ruby backstage after the match in her normal interview spot. Soho pointed out that Baker's never beaten Rio and should leave her alone. So Baker attacked, Rio made the save. This wasn't bad, but it's so formulaic with Baker. It's the same thing every week. Uh, Chris Jericho returned with obviously dyed brown hair to talk about being on TBS. 2.0 interrupted with a really bad promo segment. Um, you remember on The Office, that one episode where like Ryan Howard comes back and he's like the uh, vice president now and he's, you know, he has the beard and he's trying to get everyone to use blackberries and Creed walks back into the conference room with like, jet black dyed hair because he used a toner cartridge for it. That's what Chris Jericho's hair looked like from The Office. Uh, I hope people understand that reference because I really botched it. Anyway, uh, Danny Garcia attacked Santana and Ortiz 
Plus, Eddie Kingston made the save. They didn't even touch the heels. It was just a pointless segment, top to bottom. Even Jericho's promo wasn't very good. Uh, Adam Cole cut a promo with Reed Dragon, saying they and the Young Bucks are unstoppable together. Cole didn't like that Jake Atlas was getting attention after being signed, so he challenged him to a fight. So basically, it ensured that Cole would win and he would stay in the spotlight. His name would be the one in people's mouths. Typically, good promo from Cole. Serena Deep sat down with Jim Ross to say that she's the best and will take 17 years of frustration out on her car Rashida next week, I think in their fourth match. This reminded me why Deeb is so amazing in the ring, yet never really got a big starring role anywhere because she cannot cut a promo. So with that, let's move to Rampage. We had the TNT Championship in the main event, Cody Rhodes defending against Ethan Page. Page was funny, uh, taking a nap during Cody's entrance. Cody got a mixed reaction and asked a fan to help him up when he got knocked down, uh, basically at the ringside area. Dustin Rhodes and Scorpio Sky brawled outside because, of course, if it's an AEW match, chances are there's either a post-match attack or a brawl in the middle of the match that detracts from the actual action that we're getting. Page kicked out of Crossroads and hit an avalanche power slam for a near fall. Cody hit a Cody cutter for another near fall. He exposed Page's knee and put in the figure four, which, which Page reversed. Cody then hit two Crossroads and a Tiger Driver 98 for the win. It was a pretty good match. The fact that he can't beat anyone with Crossroads anymore to me is silly. The Tiger Driver, I think, is clearly setting up for him at some point one day to use the pedigree uh, and get booze. I gave this 3.5 stars and a B. That may be a little high, maybe a little low. I think it's right, perfect. Uh, never thought for a second that Paige had a chance in hell of winning. And because of that, I couldn't really go much higher because I just didn't believe in the match I was watching. And that's always a big problem. On Rampage, we also had Penelope Ford and the Bunny against Ty Conti and Anna Jay in a street fight. Ford almost missed a moonsault outside onto a table to the point that Conti got hit in the face with a knee and the table didn't break. Uh, she broke a prop bottle over Conti's head. Bunny and Conti both bladed. Bunny was a gory mess. Her face was just gushing blood for the rest of the match. She nicely placed Jay into a prop table in the corner. Ford hitting a good cutter on Conti into a ladder was a really nice spot. Jay then superplexed Bunny into thumbtacks. Conti then hit Jay with a gotch pile driver through a table outside in what was easily the best spot of the match. And it was actually the best spot of the entire episode of Rampage. Uh, Bunny had brass knucks, slipped, and did a split on the thumbtack somehow, which I thought was weird. Then Jay tapped her out with Queen Slayer as she had fake barbed wire wrapped around her arm. Now, I heard this match was awesome coming in, so I had really high expectations. If you stopped the match halfway through, I would have said it was a terrible match with absurd blading and two really, really bad table spots. However, the second half of the match was incredible. There were a handful of big, brutal spots, really good work from all four women after the midway point. And you got to give credit because the two notable AEW women's street fights to this point, the notable ones, have really, really delivered. So despite me starting out and like I was ready to give it 0.0 and, and shell over it, the second half of this match really, really saved it. And I went high, maybe even higher than I should have. 3.75 stars and a B plus. I was thoroughly entertained by the second half of this match. Uh, we also on Rampage got Darby Allen versus Anthony Bowens. Max Caster's rap was just awful this time. Bowens hit a draping DDT and tried to cheat with the ropes. Darby hit Code Red and a two-for-one Tope Suicida, plus a coffin drop for the win. Andrade El Idolo randomly made an entrance. Bowens hit Sting with a boombox, and they beat on Darby in yet another post-match attack. Other than that, there was nothing really notable. It seems like it's setting up Darby versus Andrade maybe at the next pay-per-view or maybe just in a big match on AEW Dynamite. So that's Dynamite and Rampage. One other thing to wrap up from AEW is that there are some really strange event bookings coming up. So they had three title matches on the first Dynamite on TBS card, which makes complete sense because you want a big show. But then this Saturday, they're doing Battle of the Belts without the top title on the line. So they're gonna have Britt Baker versus Rio, and Cody versus Sammy Guevara in a rematch for Sammy. I don't know why you are doing this show in this spot. Why not wait a couple weeks, give a little bit of breath from your TBS show? I don't get that. Maybe one of the reasons is because Tony Khan this week announced that AEW is going to hold Beach Break again. Let me repeat that. Beach Break later this month during the winter 
in Cleveland, Ohio. So as I said, really strange decisions here. It's possible that they're doing Beach Break as a special event because maybe it will be the debut of Johnny Gargano if he has signed there. He's from Cleveland. I am of the belief that what Johnny said holds true, that he was going to take time off until Candice LeRae had their baby and was probably going to take a little time off after that before he came back to wrestling. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe he's going to debut for AEW and he's throwing people off the scent. But I really thought he was going to take some time off. And if not, and if he is taking time off, then I don't know why you're having beach break in Cleveland in January. I just It doesn't make any sense to me. So maybe it'll make sense once the event happens. I thought both of those were very, very strange booking decisions. Uh, but that's really it uh, from AEW this week. I did think that the TBS debut was a very good show, bookended by a couple great matches. Everything between those matches was really rough. We have to be honest, the TBS title match was bad. It just was. Um, going back to New Year's Evil, it was pretty similar. Uh, all the men's matches were really damn good. The women's match on NXT just was not good. Uh, you know, it, there's really, really no way to put it. Uh, but New Year's Evil from NXT was a success. The TBS debut for AEW Dynamite, that was a success. And in terms of Rampage, just to kind of wrap that up, uh, the Cody match, not a huge fan really of what they're doing with his entire storyline. The women's match, totally delivered in terms of expectations being reality. It was a lot of fun to watch. So a good week of professional wrestling from NXT and AEW, which was awesome. Uh, Coming out of a very newsworthy week in the world of WWE, do not miss our WWE episode from this past Tuesday. Not only do we talk about what happened on Raw coming out of day one, we also try to book ahead to the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, thinking about how plans that have changed recently may affect WWE's booking going forward. Of course, with this being our Thursday show, the end of this week, we will be back next week on Wednesday with our latest WWE episode. Not only is Brock Lesnar going to be on SmackDown this Friday as the new WWE champion, but WWE, right before I taped this show on Thursday, announced that Roman Reigns has cleared COVID-19 protocols and he would be on SmackDown as well. So great to hear that Roman presumably is asymptomatic and is going to be able to show up on SmackDown. That does make SmackDown a very uh, interesting show. I am curious to see how they book this stuff on Friday night, especially now that Paul Heyman is back on Brock Lesnar's side. But our, our WWE episode on Tuesday will obviously feature SmackDown and Raw, and then we will be back one week from now with another AEW and NXT episode. A reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, this show that you're listening to right now, So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating for us. Those ratings are immensely important. And do not forget also to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. That is it for today. Thank you for listening to our latest episode of Getting Over. And I will leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.